Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. In an urban corner of South Korea, hundreds of giant metal spools rhythmically wind countless metres of rope in counterclockwise rotations. The multicoloured cord flexes and stretches to sit alongside the length before it, It's a process which used to be done by hand. Tedious, monotonous, endless work. Before everything was mechanised, of course. Though even today the endeavour needs to be supervised and the factory floor manager watches over his domain in a trance-like state. The hypnotic motion of the wheel tends to do that to him. He walks the length of the floor, his footsteps lost to the hum of the machines. He stops in front of the packing station, eyeing the workers who pack the tendrils of rope into boxes, ready to be shipped not just around the country, but around the world. This rope, strong and durable, will go on to be a rope swing in Canada, used on a trawler in the China Sea, and it will also become a smoking gun in a series of murders which shocked the whole of America. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 17. The Korean Rope. The Boy Scouts is an institution with over 31 million members in over 200 countries around the world. Unsurprisingly, in America, It's a hugely popular pastime, recognised as a wholesome and well-worthy programme. Its mission statement is instilling its young members with practical skills, as well as teaching them respect, bravery and good values. Most would recognise the uniforms and the salute, as well as the idea of camping trips filled with raft building, fire lighting and knot tying from movies and books across the ages. American scouts often ascend the ranks within the organisation, moving upwards from scout, then on to tenderfoot, and all the way to the accolade of Eagle Scout. The boys who reach Eagle Scout are in the vast minority, young men who have exhibited only the highest standards in terms of their skills and moral fibre. 
John Jubert was a proud Eagle Scout. He was so accomplished, in fact, that even at his young age, he was given the role of assistant scout leader, helping to shape the newer scout members joining the community. And perhaps it was no surprise John threw himself into scouting with such dedication, because John's home life was turbulent, to put it mildly. John Jubert was born on July 2nd, 1963. And the family, Dad Joseph, Mum Beverly and little Jane, lived together in a small village in the state of Massachusetts. But it's far from a happy home. His mother, heartbroken and angry after divorcing John's father, exerted violent control over the now-reduced household. John would receive regular beatings for not falling into line. Beverly Jubert was a domineering and controlling woman. She didn't want her son making friends with other children, and her temper was quick to boil over. In fact, she ritually humiliated her son by spanking him until he was at least 12 years old. School didn't provide much respite from the tension of home either, and John was bullied for his awkward behaviour around other children and because he was particularly small for his age. But John was clever, with an IQ of 123. And despite feeling largely unhappy and out of place, he did well in his classes, particularly English and history. He played clarinet too, with some degree of sophistication. He was serious about his education, and when the family moved to a different neighbourhood in Portland when John was just 11, he took on a paper round to allow him to pay for his tuition. At the end of the summer of his 11th year, largely funded by the money he'd saved, he began to attend Cheverus High School, Portland's all-boys Catholic secondary school. Much like his previous school, John tried to keep his head down. He was quiet and studious, drawn to reading and spending a lot of time in the library. He learnt to avoid the bullies who, sadly, he hadn't managed to leave behind. There were plenty more people to taunt him in Oakdale, his new neighbourhood, and his mother's anger, which she aimed at John, was harsh, and humiliating taunts were by now just an accepted part of life. The only thing which brought John out of his shell was the Boy Scouts, which, much to his joy, he found he excelled at, from pitching a tent while camping, applying a makeshift tourniquet on a hiking expedition, lighting a fire in damp moss or using rope and pulleys to abseil down a cliff. He was a natural. But these wholesome afternoons spent in the woods or by the rivers in Oakdale were playing out against a darker backdrop, Police and locals were on high alert after a series of seemingly random attacks which had taken place across the town. In December 1979, six-year-old Sarah Canty was playing in her front yard when a young man on a bicycle rode past. As he drew nearer to her, his bicycle spokes making their signature rhythmic tick, he stabbed her with a pencil. She screamed for her parents, but by the time they arrived at her side, the person who had stabbed her was long gone. About six weeks later, in January 1980, 
27-year-old Vicky Goff was walking along one of Oakland's main avenues. A young man grabbed her from behind. He covered her mouth with his hand to stop her from screaming and plunged a knife into her side. Clutching her abdomen in pain, Vicky watched her attacker flee, without managing to get a clear look at his face. In March 1980, nine-year-old Michael Witham was walking down the same street as Vicky Goff had a couple of months previously when a young man on a bicycle pulled up alongside him and began to chat. He asked him whether Michael wanted to see something cool in the woods. Michael dutifully followed. Under the canopy of green, the pair idled. The man asked Michael some questions before telling him he could go. Michael, a bit baffled, turned away to start the walk through the woodland and back home. It wasn't too far, but before he'd taken more than two strides, he felt something cool and sharp slice across his neck. The stranger had cut his throat. Doctors later marvelled that Michael had not only made his way from the scene of the attack to seek help, but that he survived at all. It didn't take a rocket scientist to establish that the MOs were clearly connected. A young man, a bicycle, knives, stabbings. But the police had nothing concrete to go on other than the testimonies of two children and a woman who hadn't seen her assailant. The local press nicknamed the attacker the Oakdale Slasher, and everyone upped their vigilance in case he struck again. But, as the months went by, and 1980 gave way to 1981, there were no more attacks. The danger seemed to have passed. After graduating from Chevres High School in 1981, John began to attend Norwich University, a small, private military college in Northfield, Vermont. The town, located in a valley within the Green Mountains, felt small, safe, and John threw himself into his chosen engineering course. But it wasn't the fast track into work he anticipated, and John found it tough. So he decided to sidestep from his original plan, pivoting instead to join the military. For someone with his restraint and practical inclinations, it seemed like a good fit. And he enlisted in the United States Air Force in August 1982. Half a year later, John was stationed at Offutt Air Force Base in Bellevue, Nebraska. As its name suggests, Bellevue was a growing and picturesque city, and John seemed to settle in well. He continued with his military career and started training to become a radar technician, learning to install and maintain equipment for air traffic control weather tracking, or for maritime and military use. He also joined the local scout troop, not wanting to let go of the pastime which had made him so happy. If you're enjoying Smoking Gun, sign up to our brand new subscription site called What's the Story Crime? You can listen to every episode of the new series of Smoking Gun right now. You'll also get access to a whole collection of award-winning true crime content, including shows like The Missing and Crosshairs, all made by the makers of Smoking Gun and all of them ad-free. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts 
or follow the link in our show notes. Your support allows us to keep making more of the podcasts you love. In Portland, Maine, 11-year-old Ricky Stetson threw on his tracksuit and closed the door behind him at around quarter to eight that summer evening. It was mid-August, the year was 1982. Ricky picked up his pace as he reached the promenade which overlooked the water. He was full of energy as he zipped past other cyclists and joggers, young and old. The people of Back Cove in Portland wove in and out of each other's paths amiably, enjoying being out in the late summer sun. Some of them smiled at the young boy, clearly having the time of his life. But when the sun set a few hours later and the joggers had all departed, Ricky still hadn't come home. That wasn't like him. He wouldn't willingly stay out after dark. A creeping feeling of panic rising in his gut, Ricky's father phoned the police. Officers headed down to the promenade but couldn't see any sign of the young boy and everyone agreed a thorough search would be instigated in the morning. But a search wasn't necessary. In the early light of the following morning, Ricky's body was discovered by a lady on her way to work. Laying in some grass next to the jogging path, he had seemingly been the tragic victim of a hit and run. But when Ricky's body was taken to the mortuary for an autopsy, an impact with a car was not found to be the cause of death. Marks around Ricky's neck and a crushed esophagus indicated he'd been strangled, both manually and with the use of a ligature. There were stab wounds in his chest and strange indentations on the calf of one of his legs. These tiny dents looked like the telltale signs of a bite mark. But over and around it, the skin had been scratched or gouged with a knife, frenzied red streaks etched into the boy's flesh. I've not seen anything like it before, the coroner told the detectives, who had now been assigned to the case. In the precinct, surrounded by jugs of coffee and mountains of paperwork, a group of Portland police's finest discussed the case. Whoever did it must know about forensics, one of the officers mused. Attempting to cover his bite marks was certainly a suggestion this man knew the unique indentations of his teeth could lead cops to working out who he was. After all, dental imprints can be as unique as fingerprints. And, sure enough... When a specialist forensic dentist was brought in for his expert opinion, they also confirmed that such self-aware behaviour was incredibly unusual. It implied an intelligence about forensic techniques over and above the average killer. It was a detail which would later help to build a profile of the perpetrator. Detectives set to work. The murder of a young boy would not be taken lightly on their watch. Every driver, jogger, cyclist or pedestrian from that night, and many others besides, were extensively questioned. Patrols around the Back Cove area took place round the clock. Ricky's family, devastated with grief, offered any help they could. But, honestly, what insight could they offer? Who would want to harm an 11-year-old unless they were a madman? Various people were questioned, and one man, a Joseph Anderson, was even arrested for Ricky's murder. But he was soon released, 
as the bite marks on Ricky's leg were not a match to his dental impressions. And despite the best efforts of the Portland PD, Ricky's case went cold. More than a year later, on Sunday, September the 18th, 1983, 13-year-old Danny Joe Eberly was up early for his paper round. Danny's prized possession was his bicycle, which he used to deliver the newspapers. When Danny did not return home after his paper round, his parents became worried. The police were called and a large-scale search began. Danny's bicycle, along with the vast majority of the newspapers, were discovered near the fourth home on his route. Danny was delivering newspapers in Bellevue, Nebraska, when he disappeared on the morning of September the 18th, 1983. He delivered the first few papers on his usual route, but then he seemingly vanished. When he didn't report back to the store or arrive home from his shift, his parents called the police. The only sign of Danny at all was his trusty bicycle found lent against the gate of the fourth house on his route. The remaining bundle of papers lay on the ground next to them. Danny Joe's mum and dad knew the bike was their son's pride and joy. He would never leave it unattended. Three days after Danny Joe's disappearance, police organised a mass search, led by police chief John Calterman. And the chief himself had only been searching for around 30 minutes when he spotted something lying next to the road in some vegetation. It's him, he said. Danny Joe was lying naked aside from his underwear. He'd been bound and stabbed numerous times in the back. The boy's throat had been cut, and again, there were bite marks on his body. Flags all across Bellevue were flown at half-staff in Danny Joe's memory, and the community was in complete shock. All eyes were turned towards the police, and the pressure to solve this crime was palpable. The police, however, had little or nothing to go on. There was no physical evidence or DNA samples found on Danny Joe. No one had seen anything. But there was one unusual piece of physical evidence that was collected and logged. A section of rope, the rope used to tie Danny's hands and feet, which was made up of multicoloured strands. It was distinct. And the knot it was tied in was pretty distinct too. In December 1983, less than 11 weeks after Danny Joe disappeared, 12-year-old Christopher Walden was walking to school, but he never made it to class. His body was found in the undergrowth of a wooded area by two men who were out hunting pheasants three days later. Christopher's body, which had been dumped three miles from the nearest road, was frozen and partially covered in snow due to the harsh weather of the Nebraskan winter. Like Danny, Christopher was wearing only his underwear. He had been stabbed to death, and his throat had been cut so deeply that he had nearly been decapitated. An odd, star-shaped pattern had been carved into his skin, and sure enough, there were bite marks clumsily concealed by his knife wounds, all the same hallmarks as the previous crimes. But this time... Police had a witness, 
a woman had seen Christopher being approached by a young man, a young man driving a tan-coloured car. She thought the number plate began with R, and she remembered seeing Christopher speaking to the man in the car before getting in. It was quite a heated exchange, or at least it was from the older man, but the witness had no clue she was watching a kidnapping unfold. She assumed it was a parent or older sibling reprimanding a child for something and taking them to school. But later, when she saw on the news that a body had been discovered, she felt her blood run cold. She realised what she had seen. She couldn't turn back the clock and prevent that young boy from climbing into the car. But she could help police identify the person driving it. The police sketch, which was compiled based on the witness's description, had an eerie quality. Big, emotionless eyes were framed by thick brows, and a woolen hat was pulled down low over the man's forehead. He was described as being five foot eight, and between the age of 18 and 25. Having a physical description was, of course, incredibly helpful to the officers on the case. Composite sketches and e-fits have assisted in solving countless cases across the world throughout history, but a psychological profile has become increasingly useful too, allowing police to understand what motivates someone intent on killing. Often, murderous methods can offer clues about who the killer is, their habits, their skills, even where they come from. These tools of the trade, rooted in the mind, can provide vital leads. And, as such, FBI profiler Robert Resler made the journey to Nebraska to assist in the investigation. Looking at the two Nebraskan crimes which had taken place, Ressler came up with a number of theories. The discovery of Danny's body so close to the side of the road suggested that the killer was small and not particularly strong. He'd not been able to carry Danny's body very far. He also hadn't concealed the body very well, making it plausible that he wasn't very familiar with the area. Ressler also suspected, like the forensic dentist before him, that the killer had some knowledge of criminal investigations, given that he tried to obscure his bite impressions on the victim's bodies. He theorised that this knowledge likely came from reading detective magazines or novels. And then, there was the rope. The rope which had been used to bind Danny's wrists and ankles was not one detectives had ever seen before. It was sent to FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. for examination. What made the rope so unique was that the inside was composed of many different types of fibres and over a hundred different coloured yarns. Experts who were consulted agreed with detectives. It was far from commonplace. Officers were dispatched to stockists of hardware stores and supermarkets across the state trying to establish where it might have been purchased. Others phone-bashed manufacturers to see if anyone could identify the unique rope, which was eventually traced by the FBI to a South Korean manufacturer who made it specifically for the US military. So, was the killer a military man? Meanwhile, police tracked down known paedophiles for questioning. A hypnotist was even called in, to help witnesses recall potentially repressed memories. And a local bank announced a $40,000 reward for information leading to the killer's arrest. Everyone wanted to find this man, this dark silhouette of a person. 
but that killer, that they were all trying to figure out from afar, had already set his sights on his next target. On January the 11th, 1984, a Bellevue preschool teacher, Barbara Weaver, was going about her morning work routine of preparing her classroom for her students' arrival. Barbara, a member of the community for many years, had been closely following the cases of the murdered boys, Danny Joe Eberly and Christopher Walden. She thought about them as she looked into the faces of her students. Such innocence lost. Barbara was briefly distracted by movement outside the window, and she noticed something that struck her as suspicious. A car she had never seen before was idling in the parking lot, and when she looked closer, she saw a young man sitting in the driver's seat. To Barbara, he looked a lot like the young man in the composite sketch she had seen on the nightly news. Barbara and the young man in the car made eye contact. The man did not look away, and there was something about his stare that made her insides clench. She walked back to her desk, took a piece of paper from one of the drawers, and scribbled down the license plate number of his car. The next thing Barbara knew, the door to her classroom flew open, crashing on the wall behind it with a thud that made her cry out in fright. The young man from the car stood in front of her. For the second time that day, the pair looked at one another, In his hand, she saw he held a knife. This was the stuff of movies. It didn't happen in real life. And with an immediate surge of adrenaline, Barbara found herself sprinting round the desk and past the man. She flew down the school corridor and burst out into the street. The nearest house was directly opposite the school and she hammered on the front door, shouting that she needed help. Meanwhile, the man with the knife climbed back into his tan car and sped away. The tyres screech, piercing the air. After interviewing Barbara, the shaken preschool teacher, detectives ran the licence plate number she'd written down through their system. It was registered to the address of 20-year-old John Jubert, a radar technician for the United States Air Force, who lived on the Air Force Base in Bellevue. Jubert matched Robert Ressler's psychological profile to a T. He was young, petite, not very strong, and he volunteered at a local scout troop. The police immediately obtained a warrant to search Jubert's room on the base, where, other than some porn magazines, there was nothing particularly of note. But outside, in the parking lot, in Jubert's tan-coloured car, forensic investigators had more luck. They collected hairs, a roll of duct tape and a knife. The hairs were DNA tested and found to exactly match those of Danny Joe Eberly. And then there was a line of rope, rope with multi-coloured strands. It was tested too, the fibres compared with ones at the crime scene, and in some cases, embedded in the murdered boy's skin. It was an exact match to the rope which had been used to bind Danny Joe. Robert Ressler was giving a presentation at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, on profiling the killer of the two boys in Nebraska. And it sparked the particular attention of a police officer from Portland, Maine. The murder of Ricky Stetson in his hometown in August of 1982 
sounded eerily similar to the killings Resler described. Perhaps most striking was that Ricky Stetson, Danny Joe Eberly, and Christopher Walden had all been bitten by their killer, and the bite marks had subsequently been further mutilated with a knife in an attempt to cover them up. The officer approached Resler, stopping him after the presentation, introducing himself and tentatively broaching the subject of Ricky Stetson. The Portland officer was right to raise it. The comparisons were undeniable. Together, the two forces cross-reference, diving into Jubert's past. Employment records, as well as driving licence addresses, revealed that he was living in Portland before he joined the Air Force. There was a clear paper trail which showed he had moved to Nebraska just four months after Ricky's murder. Investigators obtained a cast of Jubert's teeth and a forensic dentist confirmed that they matched the bite marks on Ricky's leg. For the investigators in Portland, things were finally falling into place. After Ricky's death, Jubert had joined the Air Force, presumably to put as much distance between himself and the scene, geographically and professionally, as possible. After all, who would suspect an upstanding member of the community such as a military man, the embodiment of moral fibre? But when he was eventually questioned by Portland police... It didn't take much pressure before Jubert told them about crimes he'd committed in his past. In a bombshell confession, Jubert revealed that under the moniker the Oakdale Slasher, he'd practiced his technique, preparing himself for the killings he planned to commit in the future. He even expressed relief that he'd been caught, saying he was sure he would have gone on to kill again. On January the 12th, 1984, Jubert was arrested and charged with the murders of Danny Joe Eberly and Christopher Walden. He pled guilty to both murders, and while awaiting trial in Nebraska State Penitentiary, he underwent several psychiatric evaluations. Just like with the Portland police, he didn't hold back in telling his story to psychiatrists. As a child, he remembered having dark fantasies about choking his babysitters and cannibalism. Even when he was riding his bike on his paper round or being the model Boy Scout, his thoughts were always there, contaminating his mind. The crimes he committed in Oakland were sexually motivated, he explained, and after getting away with the initial assaults, Jubert committed his first murder on August the 22nd, 1982, an event which triggered an ever-increasing appetite he would go on seeking to fulfil. Psychiatrists also concluded that Jubert suffered from schizoid personality disorder, probably onset in childhood, and that he held sadistic tendencies made clear by the torture he inflicted on his victims. His time in the Boy Scouts, and later in the military, provided the perfect cover for his predilection for hurting the helpless, a motivation which turned to murder. Despite multiple evaluations diagnosing Jubert's disorders, the law determined he was in his right mind while committing his crimes. He was charged with two counts of first-degree murder on January the 12th, 1984. Initially, he pled not guilty before dramatically changing his mind. Jubert was given a life sentence in Maine 
for Ricky Stetson's murder. But in Nebraska State, where Jubert had murdered Danny Joe and Christopher, capital punishment was still in force. And he was executed by an electric chair at 12.29am on July 17, 1996. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, And by me, Tracy Alexander. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3 99 per month.